You are listening to an interview with Michael Graves, produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. But just to begin with, as kind of biographical setup, could you just tell us a little about your background, your parents, where you grew up, um, your training as an architect? Mm -hmm. Well, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, to parents who were not in the field of architecture at all. My mother was a retired nurse, and my father was a livestock uh, merchant, and though we didn't live on a farm, uh, my cousins did, and we visited there often. So I had that background as well every summer. I um, went to uh, public schools all my life, uh, grade school and high school. Uh, in high school, I was a jock. Uh, I played football and, and wrestled and ran track. You were a kind of nerd if you didn't have three sports, not just two, three. So you had to have one each season. Hand-eye coordination wasn't very good, so I didn't the ball sports like basketball and baseball. I didn't wasn't very good at. When I um, was growing up, I was interested in in drawing. It was the side of my brain, I guess, that I did the best at. Um, my uh, mother began to worry because. Everybody that came to our house, friends of theirs, would ask me what I wanted to do when I grew up. I would say I, I wanted to be an artist, a painter. And in front of my mother took me aside and said she thought it would be better if I chose a something a little more reliable. She's very conservative in that regard. She, she said, I think if you chose a profession that uh, used drawing, uh, it might be a little safer. I said, what would that be? And I was about eight years old at the time. And she said, engineering or architecture. I asked her what engineers did. And she told me. And I said, then I'm going to be an architect. And she said, well, I haven't told you what architecture is about and what architects do. And, and I said, I can't help that, but I'm not going to be an engineer. And it's got to be better than, than engineering. So then she told me, and I fell in love with it, and uh, uh, from that point on, I always said I was going to be an architect. I never had any doubt. And they even constructed courses for me in high school. And then when I got ready for college, the schools around us, I didn't think really of going very far afield. I did apply to Rice. I think I applied to Illinois and University of Cincinnati. And I didn't apply to Notre Dame, which had an architecture school, but that was it in Indiana for, for people in Indiana. There wasn't a school in Indiana like there is now at Ball State. Chose Cincinnati because uh, it was cooperative. I could go to school two months and work two months, go to school two months and work two months. And that appealed to me because I could pay for my tuition. And uh, it turned out to be a wonderful thing for me. It was a little slower, slower in yeah, toward the moment of graduation and, and an extra year because of the cooperative uh, relationship with work, work study. And then when I graduated, I applied to graduate schools and I got into Harvard and I went there and that was a big mistake. Uh, it was a terrible place, uh, I thought. Uh, when I was at Cincinnati, I learned Mies van der Rohe, uh, because he was in Chicago, I suppose. 
When I got to Harvard, of course, it was just the opposite, it was Le Corbusier. Palladio was never mentioned. In fact, nobody was ever mentioned except Le Corbusier. The dean told me personally, he said, you'd better get with the program or you won't be here very long. Because the first project I did was very Miesian, and he said, no, 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 this will never do. And so I, I uh, looked at the work of, of Le Corbusier, and that wasn't hard for me to comprehend at the time. Um, and the way Jose Luis Sert, the dean, taught, and he was our instructor, was one of simple uh, thematic moves, not very important. I remember once we were doing a, a new uh, concert hall, and I was looking at historical concert halls on my desk with great elephant folders, and one of them was the Paris Opera House, and he came along and he saw it, and he reached up on my desk. He was a tiny little man, and he closed this big book to all his strength, I think, and he said, you won't need that here at Harvard. So we weren't even allowed to look at, at, at history. After graduation, I thought I'd better get my brochure together and find another way to get smart. And I applied, I worked for a year in New York at, at a architect and furniture designer's office, George Nelson, who was working with Herman Miller at the time, Charles Eames and others. Um, and I uh, worked there happily for a year, met Richard Meyer, um, just by chance, and he and I did a competition together for the, the Roosevelt Memorial uh, that was going on at the time. And uh, I applied at the end of the year after I'd gotten my brochure together for the Creta Rome. And I was in New York and the interviews were in New York, so that was convenient. And I, I uh, surprised myself at one and uh, went to Rome for two years. And that's uh, where I learned architecture. Um, just before asking you a question about um, Rome, um, when you said that you worked during your undergraduate, what kind of projects were you working on? Was that in this Mesian vein? What were you... Oh, I worked for architects. Yeah. I worked on houses, uh, mostly houses and school buildings. Well, I think only houses at school buildings, as I now remember it. And I did working drawings, and I did, I designed a house in Oxford, Ohio, for one of my employers. He was so upset with me, I, sp I spent the weekend in the office redesigning his design. He had asked me to clean it up a little bit, and I re completely redid it. And he was furious, but my design got built. I've never seen it, but anyway, there it is. So, um, yeah, can you tell me a little more about your encounter with Europe, uh, especially the Rome Prize? Was this the first time you went to Europe? Yes, I, w I was in a class of 32 or 3 people in, at Harvard. I think I was the only one that had never been to Europe. And so here is this little Hoosier going off to, to Rome and seeing the American Academy for the first time. If you've never seen it, it's a magnificent building and grounds. And my studio was palatial, it was as big as this house, it seemed. And uh, it was just just for me, but nobody else didn't have to share it. Uh, at that time, I shared it with my wife, who was a painter. But Rome was a, was a real awakening for me, because we were in the throes in this country of when you add on to a building, you 
you had to tear the original building down and start start afresh and then you realize the history of Renaissance buildings they've been built so many times and by many good architects and and just take St. Peter's for an obvious one uh, all the kinds of constructions that happened there and you realize those kinds of things you also realize that architecture is a language that can speak to you in in its own abstract terms uh, if you're willing um, I thought I would go and and my project was was based on Borromini I, I drew everything that I could of Borromini I read everything I could of Borromini but frankly there wasn't very much at, at that time after I had left Rome there was a biography written a, a thesis really by a man by the name of uh, Steinberg, um, but that was after my time actually, so it didn't help me while I was there. I think I loved everything about Rome. I loved the city. I loved the just the passeggiato, just the ability to have a good dinner and then walk in the streets and and look at the buildings and and see the, the happiness of the people and and all the, all of that kind of corny stuff affected me uh, quite dramatically. I hadn't grown up in a city. I had grown up in a suburb. And it was the first time uh, I had urban life. And I, had, in fact, I had grown up, you know, listening or, or reading Frank Lloyd Wright, where this city is bad, you know, and you didn't know why. And 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 when you got to Rome, you find out that that there are wonderful things. And you, I had also read that that Vignola was a terrible architect. And when I got to Vital Corbusier, he said Vignola is the worst. And I found him one of the best, and so all these things were starting to ruminate in my mind that what people had said were part of their own, perhaps, misgivings about architecture and, and not what I thought. But it was the texture of the place, finally, that captured me, and if a building is terracotta like my house is, it, it's, it doesn't represent paint, it represents the earth, it represents something. And so when you see the Renaissance buildings, especially the Renaissance buildings and the Baroque buildings with this kind of language encoded in their, their materials, their color, their form, their plan, it's, and there's just so much work being done on all of those buildings by so many different people, so many different scholars, that it's a joy to listen to them when they are uh, writing a thesis on uh, a particular work of art in one of the churches uh, and how it got to be there and who was the patron and and all of that's the simple stuff but I mean uh, all of that was surrounding that work of art when that work of art was significant in their their view. You you mentioned this thematic understanding which uh, Sert had um, described Le Corbusier's architecture um, in terms of, but how was Rome in terms of formative experience of developing this thematic understanding of architecture and, and was, was it particularly a moment where you encountered art history and art historical studies in order to understand the thematic content of architecture? It was partly art history but it was, I had, I had known that the plan in reading Le Corbusier, the plan is the generator uh, of the ideas, I had the ideas, and in fact I'm contemplating writing a pamphlet on the plan now, 
but the plan uh, is given very short shrift in colleges uh, in America about what it can do and what it is. And the Renaissance plan is one that, then if you know the plans of modern, so-called modern uh, Rome done in the 18th century by Letteroe, um, and if you, if you just trace those plans, you start to see the subtleties of, of an organizational idea that, or ideas uh, that, that is so compelling that you need to know it. It's like law, I suppose, that you need to know the law to, to practice law. And you need to, to have all those books you always see behind a lawyer. That's what he's saying or she's saying when you see that, is that these are the cases behind us that are not unlike the cases we're solving now. And, and that was true for me in looking at the especially the plans of uh, the various uh, churches and public buildings that I was looking at in Rome. Can we uh, move now to Princeton and your... Can you tell us about arriving in Princeton? Um, when I was in Rome, I didn't have a practice, of course, to return to. I say, of course, I, I was working in New York and I had been offered a, by, the, by George Nelson a partnership uh, after I passed my state board examinations. And I thought about that, and it's, I thought, this is not the kind of practice I want. And, and I didn't know how influential he would be. But I always thought, because he had a reputation in America at the time, that it would be his practice. And, but uh, I, it didn't seem quite right to me. Uh, maybe it was George himself that dissuaded me from wanting to join him. But I... Uh, thought, as so many other academicians did at the time, is to write all the schools that they wanted to to teach at, uh, for me to do the same thing. And as you all know, young architects teach and practice at the same time, and try to at least. And though I didn't have any work, uh, I wrote to all the schools that I could commute to from New York. I thought I'd live in New York. And the best offer was from Princeton, and... Uh, they said we would prefer you commute the other way than if you want to practice in New York, but you live in Princeton. We really insist that you live in Princeton. And that was a director, it was not a dean. And the school did not have a deanship yet, though it was the only school of, of professional studies on the campus that didn't have a dean. Woodrow Wilson Engineering, both professional schools, had deans. So, in a couple of years, it was he retired. His name was McLaughlin, and he retired. and And Peter Eisenman came to Princeton the year after I got there. But we were entrusted by the president of all things, because he didn't want more of the same of the School of Architecture. Because, quite frankly, there was a lot of dead wood in the in the school. Interesting people but not broad enough in, in many ways, and just very cautious and careful of their own small domain. I learned a lot from them, but I'm not sure how much the students did. Um, I learned how to teach from them, uh, so they, uh, they had a positive influence on me. But nevertheless, the president at the time, Goheen, uh, asked Peter and, 
and me to find uh, a list, make a list of short list of candidates, and we did. And on that short list was Bob Geddes, who turned out to be the best interview. <laughs> I suppose he 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 comported himself the best in, to the president, and he ultimately got the job. But before that, I was at Princeton for a year, uh, really by myself. I did things like like uh, start a a program for exhibitions and lectures. We didn't have lectures at the time. There was the first year I was at Princeton. There was one public lecture, and it, I had nothing to do with it. And um, very different than what you all are aware of today. And um, they really got to me when it was time for for the selection of the new class to come into Princeton because they did require a brochure, a portfolio. It was just based on on recommendations and your grades. I said, I won't come again until we have a portfolio. And you got to know what these people can do, especially the ones coming into the second program, which was people who had a Bachelor of Architecture degree and were going for a master's. And so it was a very easy fight, and I won, and, and uh, they just didn't want to do the work. Uh, and, you know, they this was a very, very different place then. You know, if they had a good, a good recommendation from your your Presbyterian minister, that was a good deal. You know, uh, so uh, surprisingly, the the classes weren't much different than when we we looked at the portfolios <laughs> and then just looking at their letters of recommendation. Those first classes were not so bad, and those people who had gone out and done things pretty interesting. Uh, but the next year, Peter came, uh, did the same thing I did. He was, he was in Cambridge and, and teaching there and, and working on his PhD on Durrani. He wrote to schools and got an offer from Princeton. And so uh, they took him. I didn't even know he was coming. I had met Peter in Cambridge, Mass. Um, I was working there after graduate school for a summer, and so was Peter. And there would be a whole gang of architects that would gather up for sandwiches at lunchtime on the Charles, and we'd talk about things. And I just I remember this character. That's all I, I knew. I didn't know Peter Eisman, really. Then in Rome, I was working on weekends for Walter Gropius, who was, was designing the Baghdad University, of all things. And I was designing a couple of, of dormitories. And Peter came because the... The, uh, there were a couple of people at Gropius's in Rome that he knew from, from Gropius in Cambridge. Uh, we saw each other then and shook hands and so on. Was that before you met in Princeton? Yeah, but I didn't remember. You know, just, just this curious caper, fellow who came in in tube socks and Bermuda shorts and, and, and he was with Colin Rowe. Oh, these famous trips that he drove yes, around. Yes, yes, this is all the famous trips. I met Colin, and, and I didn't even know Colin's writings at the time. What a help that would have been. Um, so Peter came to Princeton. We got together and, and decided that we should do competitions together because we were the only ones in the school 
And then there were the students who we adored. They were great kids. But the, but the faculty members were not our friends because we were working hard. And like two young Turks, we were, we were turning the place upside down and, and doing a lot of work. And it was kind of showing them up, which was, was not our intention at all. We just wanted to make a school of architecture. And then Geddes was hired, and he insisted on being, being dean, uh, which he was the right to do so. And then uh, Geddes was was then dean for I think seventeen years. So that was the that was the, the management of the school all those early years up through seventy five, as you asked for. What were some of these competitions that you were working on with Peter? Well, I came to Princeton in nineteen sixty two. Peter in sixty three. We worked on a competition for the Boston Architectural Center, which is called the BAC. It's a private school of architecture in Boston. Not many people who were not around Boston know about it, but it's a small school and they were going to build a new building. So we, we did that one. We did a an art center for one of the California schools. But by the time we'd worked on the third one, we hated each other so much that we were, we were doing a, a project where there were a specific number of boards that were required and you had to have specific drawings on specific boards. And you had to have the ground floor plan uh, on the same board with the front elevation. And so there was a table like this, and I was drawing the elevation on one side. Peter was drawing the plan on the other side. And his wife was sitting in the middle of us on the side uh, to try to keep us from tearing each other's heads off uh, as we were arguing about the scheme. and. Um, our schedules and everything else it was it was so stupid but uh we got over there but we decided not to do any more competitions together but those competitions are still floating around and in fact a book is being written now by david Money on those early years of princeton uh and he's probably going to find those someplace and and publish them god help us all i as i told you i did a competition with richard meyer we did the roosevelt memorial uh, it was a little more credible than some of the stuff that Peter and I did, but Peter and I used to joke we'd send our competition symbols like, we're going to get last again. And Oh, I know the other, the other one was the AIA headquarters in in um, Washington. And that went from bad to worse in terms of choosing a winner. They chose a winner and then they it was not allowed for some reason and they chose another one. And then they chose an architect. All the boards were evidently shown in, in the AIA headquarters in, in Washington at the time, according to, to uh, the first ones on the upper floors and the second ones, and then the last ones in the basement. And I said, well, I'm sure we're in the basement. We didn't know. We just decided we were. But the scheme was, was something like neither of us ever did again. Aldo Jurgula, the winner, looked at it, we know, because his first drawings were very much like, he, he was just a dedicated winner. I don't know whether he even participated in the competition, but they couldn't, couldn't get, agree on a winner, so they just appointed Aldo, who was kind of hot in those days, and he got the job. But we did this kind of stupid wedge. It was a difficult site because the octagon, which is a historic house, is on the corner of the site and it was owned by the AIA and this modern building was going to be behind it and none of us knew how to make 
a contextual building when something like that didn't didn't occur to us how to speak that language and at the same time be a modern architect. So we just did a kind of abstracted thing, which wouldn't be bad today, I suppose, if if we did it because it's the kind of thing that I guess you guys are all doing. That's not fair, but but what I see published in the magazine. But those early days were were terrific because Peter brought with him his teaching methods from Cambridge and a couple of problems which were very skillfully thought out, not necessarily just by Peter, I don't think, but people before him, and he took those up. And I did um, an Albers-like uh, early design studio because we had freshmen who were taking architecture and they wanted to draw. So I didn't think it appropriate for them to do our kind of simple architecture projects, but to do more abstracted things. And I gave a course called Let the Students Name Spots and Dots. The projects would have their own internal logic. You would They would be two-dimensional and three-dimensional. And they were terrific things. But after doing it a few years, I realized that the kids who did well in that weren't necessarily good architects. And so I started doing uh, some sort of baby architecture projects and, and with the students, and that was successful. And I loved doing it because it, it chased me to the library because I, I wanted to learn the kind of thematic structure of architecture. And, I would take out these books and I would see that Bill Shellman, who was on our faculty and, and was one of the old old guard at that time, took them out in 1940, you know, or something like that. Gombrich, for instance, and, and people like Gombrich uh, that I was reading from every book he wrote and using that as part of my teaching method um, to try to give meaning to form. I didn't know how to do that. Uh, I suppose the most significant thing I could say to you guys is that I was trained in the 50s on the basis of architectural design. And that's, I'm putting that in the negative. Not architecture as, as a form, art form or a language, but design, how things lined up with each other, how you made plans, how you made elevations, how you determined elevations adjacent to existing buildings. All of that were done on alignments and really easy kinds of uh, determinations. And I wasn't satisfied that with that. So reading Gombrich and others like Gombrich, I can't think of them now, I was bowled over by, by Gombrich giving ideas to form and what and what that what it meant, and attributing characteristics to forms that were quite obvious, but I didn't know how to do that at the time, so that helped me enormously. And then I started a course based on thematic structure and architecture, a course that that Liz Diller got rid of. That was really my exit from Princeton, um, but that's later on. Um, anything not Liz, she wants to get rid of. But I started my course from the outside, from the landscape, the landscape to the front face, to the plan, 
to the interior, to the section, uh, all of that. Each one was a lecture. Um, and then more ambiguous ones, like I took a line from uh, Clockwork Orange where I said a little of the old in and out uh, so that you'd understand the relationship from inside to out and outside to in and all of that. And it gave me a chance to be, to criticize other plans being made at the time, especially by people that we all admired, people like Lou Kahn, who was the architect of the moment. But Lou would enter buildings on the corner, and neither Peter nor I could stand that kind of, we called it the hatchet in the forehead, uh, where, you, where there was no procession, no... Uh, as the French Beaux-Arts would say, no architectural marsh uh, through the plan. Um, can I uh, quote some pieces? I was reading some of the syllabi that are at school from these classes that you're talking about. Um, one from 1965, where you begin the syllabi with this bold statement, architecture exists in the mind and not necessarily in built form. Architecture is a cerebral art, not a man manual art. To stimulate your critical faculties, sharp on your intellects, and in turn, free your imaginative powers, we propose a series of seminars to study architecture in the abstract. These seminars will investigate the principal ideas behind the modern movement. So I guess that's what you're saying about this early mm. course. Um, in that syllabi, you quoted three of Colin Rowe's different essays, which were, at that point weren't published. So, uh, and then later on, I think by, uh, in a 1971 course, you were fully uh, talking about um, ideas of transparency. I guess you were reading his, uh, Rowan Slutsky's article. Um, you talked about what you termed conceptual transparency, endowing literally and phenomenally transparent organizations with the super experiential significance of primal, semantic, or symbolic themes. Uh, these gain significance in the role of fantasy or wish fulfillment in the Freudian sense and as the manifestation of the sacred and the profane in Eliada's interpretation of religious myth. So this is, that was all quoting from you. So I wanted to ask Amazing. what the role of these... <laughs> where did I get that? <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to ask. Uh, where I did you get that? Um, I, I talk of, much plainer today. Like, what, was, what were people reading, basically? And what were the kind of literature coming into these seminar courses in terms of Eliada, Rowe... Um, Rowe, you said that Colin wasn't published. In fact, we did a kind of published, we published him. We got all of Colin's, Peter and I got all of Colin's um, articles. I say Peter and I, we had more people than I'll tell you that story. But we got all his articles and put them together and, and Xeroxed them, or mimeographed them. We didn't, there was no Xerox. Mimeographed them in purple. And we all, we all had one, and Colin was charmed by it. But one of the things that happened um, was that early on, Peter Eisman and I said, what are we going to do besides doing competitions? What, are we, what's, what academically are we going to do? We could, we could try to get out of this place, and it wasn't all that healthy for us um, because we had nobody to talk to, just the two of us. Uh, and go do toilet room details for SOM. That's the way we characterize going to work for somebody. Or we could we could try to do competitions, which we did do. But then there was a book written by um, by Jean Gottman, and the book was Megalopolis, 
It was a book everybody was reading at the time. And it was what, what was poignant about it, it, would sh it showed in the last century from 1900 to 1960, what had happened to growth of the Eastern seaboard from Florida to Maine. And it, it characterized the, the growth with a little black dot for representing a thousand people or 10,000 people or whatever. And you could see it just getting blacker and blacker and blacker. And the, the city, the cities weren't round anymore. In other words, the centroidal city was, was in jeopardy uh, because of the, uh, if it were a good thing, and in other words, if the centroidal city was someplace where we lived and worked and did all the things we were supposed to do, which we didn't do, but we started to build, build the suburbs, and the suburbs continued and met the next suburb and the city and so on. Think of the eastern seaboard when you're on the train, you're always passing uh, some little hamlet at Berg. And so Pierre and I said, what if uh, we made a study of the centroidal city and the linear city? And so we wrote a proposal for the linear city, uh, which would be a city from, I think we thought probably from Philadelphia to New York to start with, but Philadelphia to Boston ultimately, and then beyond that, Maine to Florida. But uh, 100 miles was enough to start with. And then we found out all the linear cities that had been done over the years by some Spaniards and some other people. Uh, but that was fascinating. But we wrote a proposal, and we submitted the proposal to the university, and the university submitted it to, to uh, people willing to give money to these kinds of affairs. And we, made, we got $100,000 from Prudential. $100,000 today for you guys would be like a million dollars. It was a lot of money. It was, we were making $7,000 salary. And Peter and I said, well, what are we gonna do with this? We need, let's get some help. Let's get the school some help. Let's get a junior faculty in here. So what we did was we, in a sense, hired people for our project and had them teach at the school. Completely illegal. But but they were they would assist us or they would we would ask the the then director, can they have their own studio? Yeah, well why not? And they would be given their days and so on. So there was uh, and we also got a half a fellowship for Ken Frampton. So there was a fellowship called the Hotter Fellowship from Princeton. And he shared it with somebody else, but Ken, Fra Ken Frampton came for a term, not on our money, but on the hotter money. And then he stayed on our money to give us criticism, so-called, on the linear city. So we had a, another person from Cambridge that you guys probably have never heard of, called uh, Tony Erdley, um, who was known as Weirdly around, around the school. But Tony was a good critic. Uh, an Englishman. Then Peter's thesis candidate at Cambridge was Tony Vidler. So Tony came. So we suddenly had Ken and Tony Erdley and Tony Vidler and sometimes Colin Rowe to, to come down as a visiting critic and sometimes Bob Maxwell to come over as a visiting critic. And so we were building up, the, it got very English, but, but and then uh, Alan Cahoon who came in the same way and but these people would would work with us for a while, and then 
then they would be hired because the school would like them. And the school was growing at the same time the, the Deadwood faculty were retiring. And so people like Alan Cahoon and Bob Maxwell were hired full time. So this money from Prudential was really the catalyst, it was the for, catalyst. The, for the youth of the faculty, right, but, then, right. but then Bob Geddes kind of capitalized upon that yeah. and institutionalized Bob it. Bob Geddes was furious. He was furious that one that the money didn't flow through him. And he wanted us to follow procedures of, of uh, research that he thought he knew and we didn't. We were actually designing something. We were designing the section of a possible linear city. How would you do that? How would you make the section of a city where it, it would like be like Wilmington, Delaware? It wouldn't be, or like Princeton. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be New York because it wouldn't be. New York would have a different situation. But first of all, it was high-speed transportation, which we were just starting to get in the East Coast. We were starting to get Amtrak and high-speed transportation. So that's what made it possible. I, Peter, in his sports analogy, would say, you know, I could go to a, I can teach here at Princeton in the morning, and I could go to a football game at the Meadowlands in the after in the evening by high speed transportation in the linear city. It was that kind of thing. Given that um, yourself and Peter were exploring kind of an architectural vocabulary through houses, houses, um, it seems. Um, poignant or um, ironic or unusual that the kind of catalyst for this kind of project that eventually becomes kind of encapsulated in the New York Five book began in terms of uh, urban research and cities research. So I, I just wanted to ask you a question about that because it seems like the context around 1965 is really a moment where, where funding for exploration and research in the cities is at its height like HUD funding, model cities programs in, in Trenton and the like. So was it that um, when you described sitting down to kind of imagine an academic position for yourself and Peter, that you did you go towards the city and the problem of the linear city because of a kind of a culture around the problem of the city in terms of state funding, state research, uh, crises in the city at the time? One thing that... Uh... In an academic setting, which I must preface this by, that is not true in the way you catch that question, is that if Peter and I were making a single-family house in the burbs, it would have urban characteristics. If we made an urban house, it would have suburban characteristics. In other words, we didn't ever try to... And Peter's work in Palladio, I just read the other day, He's doing the same thing with Palladio, showing how Palladio, I'm not sure it was in Palladio's mind, but Peter's putting it there and, and, and letting the students read it in that manner, how it was could be seen as, a, as those country houses of Palladio could be seen as, as urban uh, constructs. So that's one thing that we were doing. We I can't give you a date. I don't know why you picked 65, but you can tell me. But the there was a show at the Museum of Modern Art on uh, the new called New Urbanism. Well, it wasn't New Urbanism, that's, I'm confused. But it was essentially the, the urban setting of New York. And what happened was that uh, Arthur Drexler, who was the director of the 
the architecture department at the museum, uh, came to Princeton to hear a lecture in the art history department and wandered over to the School of Architecture. He was early and he wandered down in the basement where our research was and we were working on the linear city. And he said, this is, this is great. Are other young architects doing this? And he said, well, other young architects are in, interested and worried about the city, but they're not doing what we're doing and trying to make a hypothetical city. And he got very intrigued by that and made a new exhibition where it was, you took 125th Street, which is the beginning of Harlem uh, North, and he gave a section to Columbia, a section to MIT, a section to Princeton, and a section to Cornell. Cornell because of Colin. We, we were doing this. Uh, MIT because of uh, a couple of people we knew there, and uh, Henry Mellon. And Columbia because Jack Robertson was at Columbia and other people were there. Uh, and it was New York, they couldn't be left out. And that made Bob Gettys furious too. Yeah. Because they came around Bob Gettys and asked us to do this. You know, in the end, it wasn't a significant show, but it would. But you were right, absolutely right. There was a lot of a lot of energy about the city, and what was happening. We had torn down everything in America. We, you know, you you tore down Des Moines, Iowa. You tore down everything for a parking lot. The folk singers would talk about it in their songs. You know, it was everywhere. The the fact that nothing was preserved. They didn't see the, the hope in doing that. Maybe to move then to talk a little bit about how during the same period you were developing your own practice. And so some of the things that we spoke about a moment ago in terms of reading uh, Gombrich and trying to develop a kind of understanding for the meaning of forms. Could you help us understand how this was manifesting in some of the early houses? Maybe to take one example, the Hanselman House, like, which as I understand it, it's got a formal logic, two double cubes and three three planes, and there's a kind of pictorial approach and a question of maybe pictorial depth between these three planes. But beyond that... That would be easy. That's the it, first reading, right? So. It didn't have any influence on the Hanselman House. No. The Hanselman House was still the old me, doing modern architecture the way I was taught to do it at Cincinnati, and perhaps a little bit at Harvard. But I had not incorporated Rome, and I had not incorporated Gombrich or Eliade in any deliberate way in, in the Hanselman House. I was so overwhelmed by one getting a house to do, getting a house from some of my high school buddies who had gotten married, and not wanting to disappoint them and making something too expensive, and all of that I felt very responsible to them. And they built it themselves. It was a wreck, but they built it themselves. And now, it's for sale again, but it's been cared for very carefully by a couple of owners. Uh, but um, it was, as I told you earlier, about design. Now, one thing I did do is I raised the piano nondelay, the living room floor, to the second floor and had a, a ground floor. There's an urban move. And Le Corbusier had done that as well in some of his houses had moved the living room floor off the ground where that would be a pilotee and that sort of thing. And it wasn't that for me. I, I put the children's bedrooms down there in a big playroom because the kids were all young at that moment. Uh, and 
and then the living room, dining room, kitchen were on the second floor, and on the third floor was the master bedroom. Uh, but that was one move I made. So you had to know to climb the stairs outside, which, you know, if you're a postman, you wouldn't do that. You'd just walk, you would climb up to the second floor to give them their mail. They would get it on the first floor. But that's the way the house works. Would you say that it was part of a broader conversation about the um, her inheritance of the modern language from Corp? Because oh, it looks similar to the work of Cooper Union at the time, too, in that it's encapsulated in that first book. Absolutely. Um, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. In fact, we used to say, I know I said, I don't know the period did or not, but when people said, what are you doing? And we were saying, well, the modern modernism was cut short with the Second World War, and Le Corbusier was working on some houses at that point and some other buildings that that were, were interrupted by the war, and by the time the war was over, he was doing another kind of work. He was doing Rochelle and more expressive work. Uh, we don't think that the modernism of Le Corbusier, Le Corbusier has been exhausted, so we'd like to continue uh, that. It was pretty weak stuff, but that's what we were saying. Peter likes the Hanselman House a lot. He, he, he says it's the best of the five. That's because he likes to tell people I was the most modern of the five. And I was pretty singular about the way I was treating stuff, but I, but I hadn't read enough then. I was still pretty dumb. Would you say that that work in general was being influenced by um, Colin Rowe's reading of Le Corbusier yeah, yeah. and his interest in cubist space and layering and ambiguity of different planes? So yeah, his absolutely. reading of the Gash facade, would, would that play into the creation? Yes, of absolutely. But one, there's one figure you're leaving out of this, and that's Wangri, uh, who influenced me a lot in those days about transparency and Gris paintings um, more than the purists and the other people uh, and in terms of, of not just cubism but of uh, ambiguities and transparencies were of enormous importance to me. Would you say that when you moved to um, Eliade and Jung and Freud and this kind of mythic ritual understanding were you making a break from this Roe-esque reception of Corp and finding your own interpretation of Corp's I didn't language. treat it, I didn't think of it that way. I thought of, of Roe and Slutsky and, and Transparency as one kernel of the, the whole pie. And I didn't have to put it down to take up something by Eliade. I could name it with Eliade. I didn't have to, I didn't have to kill it. So no, it, it wasn't one of, of either or, it was both and. Would you go to my kitchen door and get that? Sure. Yes. Don't tell anybody they came to the wrong door. They saw us here. Can I um, play you something? So just to kind of um, skip the conversation to a, to um, more of this. We were talking on the way here about um, the intersection of architecture and art and your use of reading paintings. And I, and I found this, hopefully you can see this too, I found you lecturing oh, in 1975. The, the opposite is true. When we start to describe aspects 
windows, doors, floor ceilings, and so on, mundane kinds of things that interest me in terms of this idea of foregrounding, to bring about uh, a kind of keener or sharper uh, proposition uh, concerning those things which we tend to go to sleep on, we tend to take for granted. Now, architecture about architecture is not, I don't use that in the majority, certainly, uh, some of you may. Some of you may think that's an elitist proposition, um, and that has no place in this society. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. To do otherwise is not fulfilling your role as uh, the person who is has been asked to interpret uh, those mythic and ritual aspects of life in your building. How about that here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a second clip actually, um, which I'd like to play you, because um, throughout the lecture you read paintings. Um, but actually, may, maybe just before I play this clip, just to comment on the way you introduce the lecture, defining the interpretation, the architect's role is interpreting myth and ritual. And, 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 and if that was the kind of project of autonomy, then that was how you described it as not being elitist, but being mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of for the society. I was um, intrigued by the idea of a man, for instance, who just came here to deliver a box to, to us. He's outside. If we go to the front door, uh, we're inside. If he were a friend, we'd invite him in, and he'd be in my little, you don't know, but there's a rotunda there, he'd be there. He wouldn't be inside or outside. He'd be transforming to, to the family and so on. That kind of transformation from this person to that person to finally, you all like your family now, and you're sitting here and we're having this discussion intrigues me in terms of making a plan. What's elitist about what I said in the, in the talk that you played was when I said architecture about architecture. That was a remark really meant for the moment and for that time. People like Bob Geddes, who you didn't know, maybe you will know if you go to interview him, thought that architecture was impossible without sociology. Architecture is not possible without political science. Architecture is not possible without geography. Architecture is made up of all these other things coming together. And I can't imagine a sociologist saying something about that recollection of this man coming to the door and so on, saying, what would the architect say? But Bob Geddes always thought he couldn't do anything without asking the sociologist what they were doing. And I mean that architecture has a language. Of course it's made up of all these things, these influences, but it is, it is its own language as well. All those, when we make this salami, all of it comes together in the thing we call architecture, it seems to me. You know that when you're in a building of somebody like Aldo Rossi or Palladio or an architect with, with those same, or those similar kinds of intentions, but not with everybody, of course. So, so in, um developing this kind of thematic understanding that was behind things, you know, elements of architecture, doors, windows, walls. Um, you did this lecture, I don't know how common this was for your lecturing at the time, reading, paintings. Um, this one was, I think, called uh, something about on the face of it, or something about the facade of buildings, and you went through uh, various paintings from Titian to... It's called Saving Face. Saving Face. 
Um, so I'll just play you a little bit where you're interpreting a Matisse painting. I hope this is familiar. Yeah, there he is. On the right, okay, here we are. Uh, Matisse's piano lesson um, attempts in a diptych. Uh, again, the split left, right, uh, by virtue of that kind of blue uh, jam or volume that moves up through the picture. And again, he describes as others uh, and Fatou Partai, or four piece painting, as the balustrade and the upstand of the music stand uh, starts to separate and give separate the picture uh, uh, vertically, uh, start to give the kind of four parts of the picture, upper left, upper right, lower, lower, uh, to us. And that's important in the symbolic references that Matisse has attempted here. Um, perfectly okay kind of view of student practicing the piano. Mother in the upper right-hand corner, uh, an anonymous uh, little figure in the lower left, metronome on the on the uh, uh, piano, and kind of green wedge of grass outside. I think those pieces are significant because he has warped the perspective for us by the sheer size of those uh, images, those four images. The mother and the figure in the lower left upper right to lower left have swapped places in terms of what we expect of perspective, the small object in the rear, for instance. And he has twisted the space back for us, brought the background forward and, and the reverse, I think is true, by that maneuver. I think that's true because he does it on the left side as well. Uh, the wedge of grass, I think, stands for uh, the kind of uh, pyramidal shape that Matisse certainly knew uh, mythically uh, in terms of uh, phallic sign and the metronome as well, standing for that same kind of um, uh, pyramidal shape. Mm -hmm. And again, the small uh, symbol of father in the lower right and the large one in the upper left. Perhaps far-fetched, but at the same time, it is possible to read that picture in that way, and Matisse being as bright as he was in terms of the kinds of things that he attempted to say without our really knowing about it, but take as kind of um, secondary or subliminal idea uh, without making uh, the painting difficult for us. The painting for him was difficult, and if we wanted to interpret it that way, we could, but we could also, in a sense, whistle its tune. We could take it very easily. Next, please. This is what my course was at Princeton okay. that, that Liz could deal with. I did painting after painting after painting. They weren't all modern, they were Renaissance paintings, they were sculptures and so on, and, and architecture as well, but a lot of painting. For instance, the metronome, what I didn't say, the metronome, given its shape, was not unlike the wedge of grass in perspective. Are they related? I don't know. Could it be seen as a phallic? It's a reach to say that it's a father figure, but if that's the mother up there and she's seen again down here, this is a female figure in this little piece of sculpture here. There is this kind of thing going on in the, in the painting. How, did, how were you translating this kind of reading then into architecture? I think probably more in elevation than in plan. Plans were generally simpler in my buildings. But when I said earlier in that talk, we're talking about mundane things here, 
floor, ceiling, walls, doors, windows. People don't realize that these are the repositories, these walls are the repositories of our thoughts about a room like this. Uh, this is the only place you get to play. The six sides of a volume, the floor, the plan of the, of the whole organization, the ceiling itself as a reflection of, of that plan, and then the four walls. And it was that that when you start drawing each elevation of, of every interior, that you realize the potential of what you could do and how you could say two or three things simultaneously. Wallace Stevens said that, that you've got in literature, which I took as architecture too, you've got to be um, literal enough to get us into the dialogue, literal enough to get us into the dialogue, into the text, and abstract, us, abstract enough to keep us there. It's a very nice thought. You've got to say multiple things uh, once you get into the text of what you're doing. Don't know whether that's possible in architecture, but could try. But is it that you um, saw deep thematic structures underlying the way we encounter and perceive architecture, different elements of architecture? So here it was the, the reference to a pyramidal form and, and how that might set up some kind of underlying, maybe latent mythic mm -hmm. structure. Um, but elsewhere you've talked about um, the, the kind of the, the dome's relation to the celestial sky or um, this, this is a quote from one of your syllabuses. You wrote of the archetypal symbolism of the roof as a dome of heaven or connection with the divine, of floor as what Le Corbusier called the memorable horizontal of the earth's surface, and of threshold as the place of initiation or as transition element between sacred and profane. So these kind of deep structures that we have behind elements. Mm -hmm. is, is that the kind of translation that you think? However, for this course that I gave at Princeton, I was as happy as I could be just talking about painting and not saying how this translates into architecture. I wanted the students to understand that in another visual form that these that modern paintings like Matisse, for instance, had a raison d'etre, that they weren't just pretty pictures. Because we were going through a period of time where de Kooning was and Klein and Pollock and other abstract expressionists were ru ruling the roost. And you couldn't read their paintings the same way. It was in much more abstract terms, deep and shallow, this and that, and so on. But even though de Kooning's compositions were quite beautiful, they didn't have this kind of resonance to me. Couldn't, it wasn't figurative enough for me. I, I loved de Kooning's work, but ultimately, when you paint like this, then you can see why Matisse would scratch out half the painting and do it over again to get his figurative domain more in tune with, with the story of the whole picture. You can't go away from this stuff thinking he didn't know what he was doing in that regard. So is this why you weren't looking necessarily at the abstract uh, or contemporary paintings of, of this moment, say between 1965 and 75? What was going on in painting, say, in New York at that time? Well, I, I looked at contemporary painting while I was in New York up until 1960. Richard, Richard Meyer and I would go to galleries every weekend and see the new shows. Uh, we were both interested in painting, we both painted. I looked at people like uh, David Smith 
uh, and the sculpture of David Smith, I could find architectural elements there. And I used that in lectures like this, which was later than 60 when I returned back to 62 when I returned back to the United States. But, but uh, David Smith would frame the landscape quite literally with an abstracted sill and, and jam and, and head uh, that, that in the end abstractly were quite beautiful, uh, irresistible in a way, and you could show that. And if the landscape completed that frame more so than if it weren't there, all the better, then you could talk about it. So, so what do you think of the work of your contemporaries, um, especially Peter Eisenman, who was engaging the art scene at the same time in terms of this intersection between um, minimalist sculpture and architecture that was happening in New York, uh, his reading of uh, Saul DeWitt and his notes on conceptual architecture. Because ultimately we were flicking through the pages of the New York Vibe book, this is the um, Italian version. So ultimately, like even though at a certain moment um, yourself, John Haydock, Peter Eisenman were gathered together because the work seemed to be this exploration of the, of the modern vocabulary. Was, was, would you say that it was the, um, this question of meaning and semantics that ultimately that pushed me out of it, yeah. Or the divergence between your trajectory, John's trajectory and Peter's? Right, I think so. Peter was looking for meaning in an abstract code, and I was looking for meaning in an abstract and literal code. And I think that's fair to both of us. My simple thoughts. Thank you very much for oh, speaking you're with us. This has been amazing. Yeah, you're welcome. Really great conversation. Yeah. What are you guys working on at school? Uh, well, I'm in the PhD program. I'm in the design program. Actually, one thing I I, I read your article in the New York Times uh, about drawing, mm -hmm. and uh, you're speaking a little bit, you know, about just the state of things and what will pass, and you know what you see as passing trends, and what what drawing had to offer. I was just wondering what what do you see as the future of drawing? And do you think it will come back in some other form? Maybe not as hand drawing, but will we find a way to draw the way we drew, uh, you know, by hand through the computer? My ten-year-old son just sent me ten drawings that he did on his computer. He did it with his finger, and they're they're quite beautiful. Not because he did it, but I can't imagine a ten-year-old understanding that's the shape of an apple or that's the shape of, of of a hat and other things that he did. I don't think hand drawing will ever stop. As long as there's a brain and a hand, we're always going to draw. What role is going to take, I have no idea. I know the role of, of designing buildings without drawing is very different than designing buildings with the computer and not drawing. They're, they've just got to be different. Um, the, the process isn't the same. You don't think the same. One, one thing we were talking about on the way here was looking at those kinds of axonometrics that um, were common mm -hmm. at that period where there would be kind of an optical flattening in the axonometric because you put the building straight on and then project it just purely vertically. And it seems that that drawing technique therefore had built into it a way of seeing and a way of thinking the project in terms of this problem of the flattening of two-dimensional perception and three-dimensional perception was somehow built into the way you drew. Well, it had a cubist way of thinking. Yeah, exactly. So in a way it was more purely a cubist picture than a cubist painting is that it has to be opaque in places you don't want it to be. These were completely transparent. These were line networks. I think that's one of the things that's probably missing in the, in the computer. 
because you tend to fill out the three-dimensional model. You want to complete the whole building you know, with the same equality. Mm -hmm. You want to, you know, because you make the form, you want to fill out all the beams and the floor plates and you're not doing what happens in drawing where you're kind of forced to take uh, only one view of the building in one moment in one way. Like you're just doing the section mm -hmm. and you're, you're, that kind of forces you to think abstractly just about this, the relationships of verticality and height only. And I think that's not happening in the, in the kind of computer modeling. I'll tell you a little story that's just something that's got me thinking. Do you guys know who Leo Career is? You do? Did he have any influence on you? Um, I just I just got a book of his out from the library yesterday, actually. Well, 10 years ago, he was, he was a very important architect. But um, Leo is, I mean, he could talk to you for days on end, and, it, and he has thought about all of all of it, I haven't, but I'm not saying it's all good, what he says, but he was designing a building in Miami for the School of Architecture, a new lecture hall, and he didn't do a set of drawings. He did a set of details. Do you know the architect Gunnar Asplund's work? When I said earlier that I was interested in the texture of architecture, I'm interested in the way all the pieces meet each other without being a carpenter. I'm never going to be a carpenter, don't want to be a carpenter, but I want to know how to how to turn this curve? How to how to organize this plan? I want to know all those things that are very near and dear to a work of architecture. Therefore, modern technology and the way buildings are built today are about as far from that as possible. The way buildings are built by machines today, not by hand and, and so on. But here was a chance for Leo to do a building, a real building, and he did he did like 150 little sketches of the stair the way the stair met the wall, the way the stair and the wall met the ground, that all of these things were done in little hand drawings, and he sent them off to an associated architect in, in Miami who did the worky drawings. But they knew three-dimensionally how to do everything, how every corner was going to be done. So that corner up there would be seen in the way the door, the jam, and the wall came together in a little drawing. But it went all together to make a magnificent building. You may not think so. I think it's pretty good. It's not his best, but it's a good building. But the reason I ask you if you know Osplund, Osplund had a way of doing a little city hall in a, in a town of medium size and so on that he did. And he thought about everything. He thought about the, the sill of the, the wall. He thought about how high that plate is. You've never seen one that high. But I wanted you conscious of it. But he would do it, and there might be one more turn to it. But when you look at his work, you think, how did he have the time to influence the carpenter and the mason and all the people who made this? This is what you're doing when you're making a piece of architecture, especially a house. I've just been given a new commission where there's no budget. Well, that's never going to happen to me again in my life. The client has said, if you do something I don't like, then it's your responsibility to redo it. I mean, you pay for it. I can't wait to start working on it because I'm going to see if it works for me to explore a room and to really see everything that, that, that's in that place, the kind of paintings that would be on the walls or not, and so on. They want me to do the dishes. They want me to do the silverware. Anyway, let me show you the house a little bit. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Graves. The interview was conducted by Joseph Bedford. The interview took place at Michael Graves' home in Princeton in December 2012.
The producer was Hans Tursak. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.